Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. In prayer is an excerpt from the Office of the Preparation for the Entrance of the Presentation, I should say, of Christ in the Temple. Hail, O full of grace, Virgin and Mother of God, for from you has arisen the Son of Justice, Christ our God, enlightening those who were in darkness. And you too, O just elder Simeon, rejoice, for you carried in your arms the Redeemer of our souls, who grants us resurrection. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, O Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy upon us and save us. Amen. Thank you, Father Joseph. You know, after the, the EWTN thing, or just the, my emails just loaded with people from all over the place, and one in particular that stuck out uh, um, at me that I wanted to read to you. Dear Sir, today is a day that I shall remember for many days that our good Lord Jesus Christ shall grant me. I discovered the Institute of Catholic Culture. I pray that your work will be extended to my country, Tanzania, in East Africa. Stay blessed always, Deonatus Mutani. So there you have it, all the way in East Africa. I don't know that we'll be extending our work to East Africa, <laughs> except by, uh, by internet, but there he has access to our uh, files on our website and can listen to every single program uh, and in some ways attend every single program that you've attended. And I think that's one of the real jewels that we have here at the Institute, that um, even on a night like this with the weather as it is and traffic as it's been, um, and uh, still qu quite an impressive group number of people coming out, and, uh, and then by extension the hundreds if not thousands of people that will be listening to this program on the Internet over the next few years. Um, and so I, I just want to thank our regular pledged donors who support the Institute, who make it possible for us to hold our programs and to post those programs on the web and maintain them. Um, it's not something that happens for free, and many of you have stepped forward, many people that are not here tonight, to help us accomplish that dream. Thank you all for coming out, and welcome back, Dr. O'Donnell. Thank you, Sabatino. Thanks to all of you for, for coming here and being here. It wasn't so bad actually coming out over through the mountains and everything from uh, Stephen City all the way out here, although a couple times there were trucks that cleaned my windshield for me, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Not only with the stuff kicking up, but occasionally the, the snow on the top of the truck came off and then would hit you like an avalanche, but that's clean stuff. And that did better than my washer fluid. So anyway, very happy to, very happy to be here with you all. In one way, I feel a little frustrated because there's so much in this gospel to do. But if we do nothing but whet your appetite and build in you a desire to continue the reading of St. Matthew and the other gospels, especially in this new year, that in itself would be a great achievement and a great resolution. I hope you will be able to do that. We had just talked about uh, Christ proclaiming the kingdom. Remember the last time we got to the Sermon on the Mount? 
from chapter 5 to chapter 7 is the basic Sermon on the Mount. We talked about the different dispositions that were necessary to enter into the kingdom, uh, to be poor in spirit, to be meek, and all of those other things. And we saw in a particular way that one of the things our Lord was very concerned in the proclamation of the kingdom, we're sort of doing the luminous mysteries here, the proclamation of the kingdom was to ensure that there was a genuine metanoia. That's what John the Baptist wanted. And Jesus, remember, when he starts preaching, says the same thing that the Baptist said. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That Greek word metanoia, a true conversion of heart. Our Lord was not going to be content with superficialities. Like Cardinal Newman's motto, heart speaks to heart. God doesn't want a superficial relationship. And the word heart takes us into the core of our being. And that's what he wants to be changed. That's why he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't get into the kingdom of God. And that means it can't be just concerned with external ritual. It has to be an interior renovation. And that's why he speaks with such power and authority. He went up on the mountain just like Moses and proclaims his new kingdom, the charter of that new kingdom. And that's why he's much more concerned with that spirit of interiority. It's not just enough not to kill people, not to murder people, if you're murdering them with your tongue or with your heart and you're calling them fools, calling people idiots. Or it's not enough to say that you're faithful to your spouse if you're committing adultery in your heart. There has to be that interior renovation. All right? So not just a matter of lip service, but a deep interior renovation. So what I would like to do tonight, our Lord clearly preached and spoke beautifully about the kingdom, but then again, after he proclaims the kingdom, what I'd like to emphasize tonight, since this is our last night together, is focus on the church. The kingdom becoming the church. The church is not just something that emerges, you know, a uh, hundred years after Jesus' death. It is something that he spoke of while he was on earth. This is one of the reasons why Matthew, one of the titles that he has, is Evangelist of the Church. As a matter of fact, it is only in Matthew's gospel that that word ecclesia, which is the Greek word for church, is actually used by our Lord two times. It's found in this gospel. And Matthew is very much concerned about the formation of the church. And you can see all Christians are concerned about it. That's why St. Paul talks about the church as being Jesus' bride. That's for whom he dies. So what I'd like to do is emphasize some of those texts with you. Now remember, we saw right at the very beginning in chapter 4, when Jesus is starting his public ministry after the baptism, one of the first things that he records is the calling of the apostles. Do you remember that? Right at the very beginning. Why? Matthew is an evangelist of the church. He wants to show very clearly that it was Christ's intention to establish an institution, his mystical body, his kingdom on earth, that he wanted to establish the church. It wasn't something that was invented, you know, 50 years ago by a bunch of people that get together and said, oh, we need bishops or something like that. You can clearly see it was in his intention right from the very beginning. And so you have that call of the apostles, and of course, remember, Peter is always the first one called, Simon, who is called Peter. 
And you also see clearly that he's trying to call disciples. He calls disciples, and people are so attracted they want to follow him. They want to be part of his mission. You might remember when you leave the Sermon on the Mount, you go to chapter 8, that there are several people who claim, let me come and I will follow you wherever you go. Remember when Jesus says, you know, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another one seeking discipleship, wanting to become one of his followers in a formal way. says, let me first go bury my father. And he says, well, let the dead bury the dead. Come follow me. In other words, if there's discipleship, it's all or nothing. You come all the way and be with him. So then, as he announces the kingdom, he also begins an assault on the kingdom through his miracles. Remember, by working miracles, miracles of healing, the sickness and the suffering that are in the world, that's part of original sin. That's the legacy of sin. So when Jesus works miracles, not only exorcisms, but also miracles of physical healing, that is an assault on Satan's kingdom. And they are great signs, they are great miracles, meant to instill in people belief in who he is and what his mission was all about. So tonight I'd like to start with chapter 9. So if you have your Bible, let's open up to chapter 9. And probably one of the more famous passages, one of the more famous miracles that our Lord performs is this one involving uh, the paralytic. So let's go ahead and we'll start there and see how far we can get tonight. Chapter 9. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own town. Now you know what town that is, right? Capernaum. All right, that's headquarters for him. If you ever have a chance to go, oh, this is a little side note, but I should at least tell you. You know how they keep talking about the, the house, the house, several times? They say, he went back to the house, it was Peter's house. You know, for a number of centuries, we didn't know where Capernaum was, and, you know, because Capernaum was destroyed. But they did an excavation, and they found Capernaum. But not only did they find Capernaum, they found what they believe was the actual home of Peter, right by the lakeside. And uh, they've actually built a beautiful church over the spot with a glass floor. And when you go in there and you can look down and you can actually see one room that is completely lined with gold mosaics. And they believe that was the room where the Lord was. That's where he was. So he goes back to his town of Capernaum. And behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a pallet. And Jesus, seeing their faith, everybody else is seeing something else, right? Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, thy sins are forgiven thee. And behold, some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you harbor evil thoughts in your hearts? For which is easier to say, thy sins are forgiven thee, or to say, arise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, arise, take up thy pallet, and go to thy house. And he arose and went away to his house. But when the crowd sought, they were struck with fear and glorified God who had given such power to... Okay, human beings, you have one of those. Okay, to men, all right? <laughs> Believe it or not, ladies, men are human beings. All right. 
I'm feeling very broad-minded tonight. All right. All right. A couple of things we want to notice here. The paralytic. The paralytic is a symbol of the sinner, right? He's a man who can't help himself. He can't move himself. What does he need? He needs a savior. So he symbolizes the state of the world. All of us are that way. We can't move without God's grace. Now the charity of the friends who are carrying him and bringing him is very, very beautiful. But everyone who's looking at that guy, what's the thing that everyone in the crowd sees? Everyone who has eyes, when they see this guy being brought, what are they all looking at? Same thing you and I would be looking at. He's paralyzed. It's horrible. He cannot move. It's a horrible thing not to be able to move. All right? But Jesus doesn't stay with the externals, does he? He goes to something that's far more profound. Right? Far more profound. Every time a sinner, every time someone who's in a state of mortal sin goes into a confessional and receives you know, absolution from a priest, as St. Thomas says, a greater miracle than the creation of the universe takes place. Because that's of the supernatural order. That's far greater. And how we take that for granted, go once a month, prepare poorly for it, all right? That's what he comes for. He comes to save us from our sins. Everyone's looking at the physical. He's looking at the heart. And what he sees, take courage, because something greater than a physical healing is going to happen. Take courage, son. Notice the term of affection. He's speaking as a father. Take courage, son. Thy sins are forgiven thee. Because he's recognized what? The faith that he has in Jesus. And also the sorrow for sins. You wonder psychologically what was going on here. Was this man told you're being punished for your sins? And yet he recognizes there's this approachability in Jesus. Take me to him. Take me to him. So there's something very deep going on between the sinless one and the sinner. And so even more important than the physical healing is the spiritual healing that's taking place here. As sometimes we can get caught up at Lourdes with all the great miracles that go on at Lourdes. But you know the greatest miracles that take place there are spiritual. Look, we all like the physical. I'm all for physical healing. But the spiritual conversions that take place there when people just see the faith, I remember I went there for the first time, I took a group of, how can I say it charitably, very worldly high school girls. How's that? <laughs> and they came, that's where I was teaching, and, but we did this Catholic culture trip, and we went into Lourdes, flew into Lourdes after a stay in Ireland, and they just heard this singing, and they all came to my room and said, what is that? And I remember opening my wooden shutters, and you see the candlelight procession, and they're all singing the Ave, Ave. They had never been exposed to anything like that. And they went down there, and they got rosaries, and they got the water, and they were transformed by that experience, just by the faith of the people. I don't think we saw any physical, but the people in wheelchairs and the love and the caring with which these people were being attended to was so beautiful. So, this is the first time you begin to detect opposition to Jesus, right here in chapter 9, when he says, thy sins are forgiven thee. And some of the scribes say, this man blasphemes. And Jesus knows exactly what they're saying. Now notice, first of all, he can read souls, right? He's read the soul of the man who's paralyzed. Now he knows what these guys are murmuring in their hearts. And he reads them. And he says, what is easier? 
to say your sins are forgiven, but that you may know that the Son of Man, the title that he uses for himself more than any other title, which takes us back to the prophet Daniel, that mysterious messianic figure who appeared before the throne of ages, the eternal one of ages, and the Jews knew it was a messianic title, but still it was shrouded in mystery, so they didn't fully understand what it meant, and it was perfect for our Lord, who wanted to gradually reveal his identity. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he works the miracle, and it silences the critics. And everyone is shocked, not only at the miracle that has worked, but that there, the miracle is worked to show, does the Son of Man have the power to forgive sins? Yes! So they all see that he does have the power. So the thing that they are amazed at, they were struck with fear and glorified God, who had given such power to men. Now the reason why he says to men here is Matthew is already envisioning the church. All right, because every priest is an altar Christus, the power of forgiving sins, the power of reconciliation. Jesus is not coming to liberate from the enemy Romans. He's coming to bring a spiritual kingdom, all right? And the greatest liberation is not liberation from Rome, it's liberation from Satan. It's liberation from sin, all right? And so right here, the power that Jesus exercised, that ministry of forgiving sins, it's going to be given to his church, to the successors, to the apostles, who will exercise ministry in the priesthood, and they're glorifying God who gave such power to men. Do you see the ecclesial dimension to this that's coming? All right. Now, right after this beautiful passage in chapter 9, what I'd like to do is move now to chapter 10. Chapter 10 is really the great chapter with the great uh, mission of the apostles. It's very clear that he's associating individuals with his ministry. Remember, the church in time is an extension of the incarnation. What Jesus does, his church is going to do. And the church isn't just created when Constantine the Great comes on the scene. And I'm sure Professor McGuire is going to make a good point of that. The church has existed all along, was a thriving institution. The object of Jesus is love. It's the one for whom he died. So, right here, notice how Jesus acts in his earthly ministry. All right? Chapter 10, verse 1. Let's hop to chapter 10, verse 1. Then, having summoned his twelve disciples, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to cure every kind of disease. So, who are the apostles acting like? They're acting like Jesus. Jesus extends his ministry, his mission of announcing the kingdom to his apostles. Now, just to make sure everyone gets it, these are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter. In every single list, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all throughout Acts of the Apostles, guess who's always first? Simon, who is called Peter. That's not an accident. All right? He's teaching you something. First, Simon, who is called Rock. The Rock. Because if you're doing a building, you need a foundation stone, right? We'll come to that later on. All right? You need a foundation stone. So, and his brother Andrew, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the publican. 
James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Canaan, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now the only thing I would note here is in the other list, it is very interesting that Matthew is named before Thomas, but in his own gospel, he puts himself after Thomas, and it's only in his gospel that he gives himself a title. You know what the title is? The publican, the sinner, all right? Another one of those little Matthean touches that indicate that Matthew is the author here. These twelve Jesus forth, sent forth having instructed them, do not go in the direction of the Gentiles nor the town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, preach the message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Same message as Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out devils, freely have you received, freely give. And then he goes on and he gives more and more instructions on how they are to act and what they are to do. Now there's part of this instruction that seems to speak to the mission right now, going to the Jews. But there's a broader context that he goes on later on, when he goes into chapter 16, where he's, I'm sorry, verse 16, where he says, Behold, I'm sending you forth like sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore wise as serpents and guileless as doves, and then they're going to deliver you up to councils. You'll appear before kings for my name's sake, etc., etc. But the point is, these men he associates with his ministry. It clearly shows what? After he is gone, those men are going to continue to function in the same way. And that function will be to be princes in his church. So the continuity of the mission of Jesus is found in the twelve. It shows that he intends a permanent institution. Why did he pick twelve? Probably because there are twelve tribes of Israel. And he says later on in this gospel, you will sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes. So it's meant to be a new covenant, a new people of God that are being created in this new covenant with this new uh, dispensation. And how powerful and beautiful that is. And of course, Peter's going to have a special primacy. Now, the next thing I would point out to you, keeping with the theme of this evening of the church in the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew being the great evangelist of the church, is if you go up to chapter 13, chapter 13 is known as the parables of the kingdom. And when you look at 13, he's talking about the kingdom. And he's always saying what? The kingdom of heaven is like... The kingdom of heaven is like. And the first thing he did, we had it in the gospel just a couple days ago, it's like a sower who went out to sow. And we have the great image of the sower as an image of the kingdom of God. The thing I want you to recognize on this, he's not just talking about an eschatological kingdom, a kingdom that's going to come at the end time. He's talking about a kingdom, hic et nunc, to use the old Latin expression, here and now, in this life right now. And if you look at the parables and reflect on what he's saying, it's very clear he's talking about a kingdom in the world that is flourishing, that is growing in the world. So he starts with the parable of the sower, and yet when it's sort of a, it's a beautifully rich parable about the different reactions to the word, and all of us can find something of ourselves in some of the seed there, right? The one that goes on the rocky ground, the thorns that come begin to choke it off, good start, but then you get choked off. But then again, the other thing, remember, the seed that falls on the good ground, 30, 60, 100, 
30-fold of a crop yield is phenomenal. 60 is unbelievable. 100-folds beyond comprehension. But that's the glory of cooperating with his grace. The great things that can be done. The great things that can be achieved if we cooperate with his grace in spreading the kingdom. Now you will notice that the disciples come up to him in verse 10 and said to him, Why dost thou speak to them in parables? And he answered and said, To you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not given. In other words, there's a special intimacy that they have, and so he gives them an explanation. Why? Because they are going to be teachers eventually. Now notice when he sent them out, he didn't send them out to be teachers. He sent them out to do what? To preach. To preach. Now that's important because right now at this time there's only one teacher. And who is that? Jesus. All right? They're preaching. So when they're sent out while Jesus is still on earth, they're preaching. When you get to the very end of the gospel, guess what he's going to command them to do? Teach. All right? Because the time has come. But there has to be that intimacy, that participation in the mystery of who Jesus is, that the disciple becomes more and more like the master. So this special time that he spends with them where they get the deeper insight. Now, it's interesting they're a little surprised that he's talking about talking to them in parables. Now, one of the things we know from John's Gospel is that Jesus started a ministry also up in Jerusalem. He went to Jerusalem not once, but three times at least. And in there was giving, not speaking in, in parables, but was actually speaking more in rabbinical discourse, in argumentative fashion. That's one of the reasons why when you look at John's Gospel, John's Gospel sounds different from the synoptics, from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right? And part of the reason is John's gospel takes place almost exclusively in Jerusalem, where you're dealing with a theologically sophisticated audience. Here, in the hills and fields by the Sea of Galilee, you have people who, for the most part, are peasants. They're farmers. They're herdsmen. All right? And so the speaking of parables is a better way to reveal to them slowly and gradually the mysteries of the kingdom of God. While in Jerusalem, it's a more sophisticated audience, and therefore, you get a more sophisticated type of discourse. Our Lord, in his charity, is always adapting himself, trying to reach people and hit them where they are at, and bring them to a deeper, deeper appreciation of who he is in his person. So then after that, you go on and you look at some of the other parables that he's going to mention in here, all of which are important. Um, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of a mustard seed. It is like leaven which a woman took and buried in three measures of flour. All of these images. It's like a treasure hidden in a field. It's like a merchant in search of fine pearls. All of these images of the kingdom, what I want to emphasize to you, they're all images about things that take place in the world. So the church is in the world. Remember, there's even the parable about a guy who goes out and sows... And during the evening, an enemy comes and sh sows cockle in there, you know. And uh, the whole question, should we ever root it up now, rip it up? And he says, no, don't do it now because you rip up the wheat with it. You know, as a matter of fact, this was something that was done in, for purposes of personal vengeance sometimes. Because there was a type of, I forget what the name of the seed was, you could actually throw it. If you had someone as an enemy, you could throw it in with the wheat. And when it first starts, it looks exactly like wheat. Then as soon as the ear is formed, you begin to see, oh my gosh, it's very different. And as a matter of fact, 
unless you separate the two, if you use this darnel or this cockle, it produces something in the bread that makes people nauseated. It would have made them very, very sick. So it would render your wheat and your bread really impure. And so that's what's going on here. But again, notice how it's emphasizing in this world. Will there be evil in his kingdom? Even within the wheat, will there be cockle? Yeah. But in the end, it will be separated. So it shouldn't surprise us. Remember, we want everyone in the church to be a healthy member, but are there always going to be sinners in the church? Thanks be to God, or else we wouldn't be. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? I mean, that's, just, that's not an argument for complacency. You always strive because you want to be a great witness to the truth of Christ. You want to be a healthy cell member. But it shouldn't surprise us that there are sinners in the church. The church is made for sinners, that people can come in, right? It's the sick who need a physician, not the healthy. And so that's why we should always be open and welcoming to sinners to help lift them up and to strengthen them as they seek to grow uh, in holiness. So all of the parables. Now another important passage which speaks to us about the importance of the church. I want to spend a little bit of time on this. Um, Go up to chapter 14. All right. This is the miracle of the loaves and the fishes. Now if you go to chapter 14, verse 14, 13. That's where the whole account starts. Now, one of the things we know about the loaves and the fishes, this was a miracle that Jesus performed twice. There were two instances. Every single evangelist mentions this miracle and the second miracle, which was very similar to it, the loaves and the fishes. Now, if every single evangelist mentions it and mentions the two miracles of the same type, what's that tell us? It's really important. Everybody knew about it. It's a really big thing. Now, Matthew, as the evangelist of the church, wants us to really focus upon this because he's getting ready to lead us in chapter 16 to where Jesus is going to start talking explicitly about the church. So let's start on verse 13. When Jesus heard this, he withdrew by boat to a desert place apart. But the crowds heard of it and followed him on foot from the towns. And when he landed, he saw a large crowd, and out of compassion for them, he cured their sick. So he's trying to get away. The crowds know he's going somewhere. They all flocked him. Notice, no complaints. He sees them coming. And who are they bringing? They're bringing their sick. Immediately, he's moved with compassion. Now, the Greek word for compassion, splunks thea, it's this horrible, massive word, but it implies it's like in your heart, in, in, in the very bowels of the person. It is the deepest form of pity possible. The deepest form of compassion possible. In the Gospels, it's only used of Jesus. No one else has that word referred. So when he's coming and he finds that the crowds want to be with him, they're flocking and they're bringing the sick, rather than saying, oh my gosh, you're there again. No, he is moved in the depth of his person, and he wants to go out, and he immediately, the man for others, starts curing their sick. Now when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a desert place, the hour is already late. Send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. Now, I have to think that with Matthew and John, there's a certain link here. It's evening, the sun's going down. Do the people want to leave? No, because the light's shining, right? That's where the light is. If you have eyes to see, 
That's where the light is. Now the apostles are saying, send them away, let them go get some food. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. He knows why they've come. All right? You yourselves give them some food. They answered him, we have here only five loaves and two fishes. He said to them, bring them here to me. Now, how many times have we used that as an excuse for inactivity? What can I do? I don't have anything. It doesn't matter what you have. Whatever you have, give it to him. Let him do it. Does that make sense? I mean, humanly speaking, you only got five loaves and two fishes. That's not enough for a crowd. Give it to him. Start with something. Just do it. Give it to him. Let him do the rest. Now, of course, five plus two makes seven. Seven is a biblical number of fullness, of completion. All right? So, bring them here to me. When he had ordered the crowd to recline on the grass. Now, notice it's a desert place, but there's grass. Why is there grass? If you look at the loaves and fishes account in St. John's Gospel, St. John tells us Passover was near. So what's the season? Spring, all right? There's grass because there's been spring rains. That whole area is very green and lush in the spring and in the early summer. So again, it resonates. Now also the fact that John mentions the Passover was near, he wants you to be thinking in a certain way, all right? Because as soon as you think of Passover as a Christian, what are you thinking of? Eucharist, right? Eucharist. And that's what he wants you to do here. All right. So the crowds reclining on the grass. He took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples. Hello, McFly. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke the loaves. Notice what doesn't he mention? He doesn't mention the fish. Did he bless and multiply the fish too? Yes. But Matthew's not so interested in the fish because he's primarily interested in the loaves because what's he really interested in? The Eucharist, that you get the Eucharistic connotation that he's talking about. Blessed, broke, gave to the disciples. That's exactly what's going to happen at the Last Supper. All right? And the disciples gave them to the crowds. You see the church image? Christ blessed, breaks, gives to the disciples, and then the disciples give to the crowd. Do you see what's going on here? It almost sounds just like, sounds like mass, doesn't it? All right. Blessed, breaks, gives to the disciples. Now the disciples go and give to the crowd. And all ate and were satisfied. All ate and were satisfied. Right? He who drinks this water will never thirst again. He who eats this bread, well, all ate and were satisfied. And yet, are there, is there stuff left over? Superabundance, yes. All ate and were satisfied. And they gathered up what was left over, 12 baskets full of fragments. 12 baskets full of fragments. It's a ciborium for each apostle, right? Every apostle has a basket of leftover fragments. Nothing wasted. Gather it up because it's prefiguring something. It's foreshadowing something. And it's foreshadowing a reverence that should be paid. So it also shows the ministry that every one of those apostles is going to have. Even though one of them is part of the cockle. Right? And yet he stays in the church for another two years. All right. 
So all are gathered up. Now the number of those who had eaten was 5,000 men without counting women and children. I can bet you there were more women and kids there than there were men. Women are a lot more spiritual. And the women bring their kids. All right? And so it's a beautiful, so you get the sense of the immensity of this crowd and this miracle. Now notice in 22, and immediately afterwards, he made his disciples get into the boat. He says, you leave now. He makes them get into the boat and cross the sea ahead of him while he dismissed the crowd. You see, they've distributed. Now they get in the boat. And what does Jesus do? He stays with the crowd. Do you catch what I'm saying? He stays with the crowd because the crowd have him. It's all a foreshadowing. It's a foreshadowing. That's why you see it in the catacombs, all over in the catacombs of Rome. The images of the loaves and the fishes, one of the most popular things, because they got it. It was all Eucharistic in its symbolism. All right? So he stays and dismisses them. And he had dismissed the crowd. He went up to the mountain by himself to pray. Our Lord goes up the mountain to pray because he realized how powerful this was. And when it was late and he was alone, but the boat was in the midst of the sea, buffeted by the waves, for the wind was against them. The boat, the symbol of the church. But in the fourth watch of the night, he came walking upon the sea. Fourth watch of the night. They would divide the night into four parts, all right? Uh, sets of three hours. So this would be between three in the morning and six a.m. That's when he comes walking to them on the water. Now, he's spent the whole night in prayer. He made the apostles go out to the sea, right? Did he know that the wind was going to be buffeted? Did he know he was going to walk on the water to them? He knew all of this. Whenever you hear our Lord praying, something really big is going to happen. So he comes walking on the water. And they, seeing him walk upon the water, were greatly alarmed and exclaimed, It's a ghost! It has to be a ghost, because why? People sink, right? He's walking on water. Now, this, ah, I wish we had more time. This is so important, okay. They think it's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. Then Jesus immediately spoke to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, in St. Mark, there's this cool passage in St. Mark I just have to share with you. They're shocked that he's walking on the water. And Jesus says, Fear not, it was I. And they're utterly astounded. And And Mark says, Because they did not understand about the loaves. Remember that? They did not understand about the loaves. Did the apostles understand the miracle? Everyone saw that, because we know in John's Gospel, the people try to make him what? King! They try to crown him. What they did not, what they could not understand about the miracle of the loaves was the deeper meaning. Does that make sense to everybody? And yet Jesus forces them out to the boat and he spends, dismisses the crowd, spends the night in prayer, and then comes walking on the water. Now in the miracle of the loaves, Jesus works a phenomenal miracle showing power over matter, right? Showing great power. He can multiply matter. Who can multiply matter? God, all right? So he does that. Now when he's walking on the water, what is he showing power over? Yes, but what part of nature? Not the, has the water changed? No, the water's still there. Gravity's still there. He's showing power over what? His body. And he's just done a great Eucharistic miracle, right? And they're looking at him and they don't think what? They don't think he's really there. 
he's not physically there. This is all linked together. They think he's not physically there. Do you see what I'm saying? They didn't understand about the lows, that the lows was not just the multiplication. It wasn't just a miracle. It was a preparation for Eucharist. Now he's showing power over his own body. Fear not, it is I. I am, in John's Gospel. I am. And then eventually in John's Gospel, you're going to get John 6 about the living bread discourse. All right, But we've got to stay with Matthew. All right? But Matthew's got great stuff. Now look at what happens. But, now notice he's not called Simon. He's called Peter. So Matthew wants to be thinking of you, have you think about him in his capacity, in what his function is. But Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is thou, bid me come to thee over the water. And he said, come. Now remember, Peter means rock. So this is kind of hilarious in the Greek, right? So the rock gets out of the boat, and what doesn't the rock do? All right, that's why he's using, Pe- using Peter here, Petros, all right? So the rock gets out of the boat. It's like skipping the <laughs> skipping snow. He gets out of it, an amazing thing. Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water to come to Jesus. Peter is doing what Jesus did. Do you see the point? Now look at Anyone, unless you've got some kind of a mental block or bias, is going to see this as an incredible incident that Simon, Peter, the rock, does what Jesus does. He gets out of the boat and actually walks on the water. But there is a problem. But seeing the wind was strong, he was afraid and began to sink. What happens? He takes his eyes off Christ. He notices the wind is strong and the waves. You take your eyes off Jesus Christ, and what happens? You sink, like a stone, like a Petros. All right? But, Lord, save me. Christ is saying, Lord, save me. And that's a profession of faith. He's calling Jesus, Lord, save me, makes a profession of faith. And Jesus at once stretched forth his hand and took hold of him, saying, O thou of little faith, why didst thou doubt Jesus is always spending extra time with Peter because Peter's going to be the reflex of his person. He's going to be his vicar who he's going to leave behind, who will be the representative of his love on earth. And so he needs to work with Peter. Why did you doubt? And they got into the boat and the wind fell. And they were in the boat, came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, thou art the Son of God. So they're coming to a deeper perception of who this man is through the miracles that he is working. So the loaves and the fishes... Now we have to jump up to chapter 16, which every one of you as devout, believing Catholics should have committed to memory by now. (laughs) All right? Okay, let's go up to there. All right? Now let's go to 16, verse 13. This, of course, is the great moment of the profession of faith. Now Jesus, having come into the district of Caesarea Philippi, this can be very frustrating for me. I spend two lectures in my papacy class on this passage alone. (laughs) And I don't think we have uh, the three hours to do, so we'll have to just at least open a little bit here. He came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. Mark also, who mentions Peter's profession, also says the district of Caesarea Philippi. Very important spot. I remember when I visited there. Massive wall of limestone. Josephus mentions it. There was a shrine to Pan, the god Pan there, symbol of paganism. There was also a temple on the top to Caesar, all right, who was worshipped as a god. And it's in that location he comes. 
And he asks, who do men say the Son of Man is? Notice again the mysterious title from Daniel. Who do men say? Notice he's going through three types of government here. Who do men say that I am? Democratic principle. What's the latest Gallup poll? What's the latest Gallup poll? And you leave the identity of Christ to the Gallup poll, and you're going to get pretty much the kind of response you get here. Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah. 15% one of the other prophets. All right. He said to them, but whom do you say that I am? And the you is plural. Who do you, my 12, the ones that I have selected, who have spent this time with me, who do you say I am? And no one says anything. Then one man, without the consent of the others, stands up. Simon Rock, remember? Simon Peter, Simon Rock, because he wants you to know who it is who's saying this, got up and said, answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then Jesus answered and said, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Yonah, the Aramaic name, Bar-Yonah, son of John, his full name, like in a legal document. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. So is Peter saying that Jesus is the Christ? Yes, right? Could he have known that? Could he have known that Jesus was the Messiah? Has he seen miracles? Has he seen loaves and fishes? Absolutely. So, but he's not just saying that he's the Messiah. He's saying something more. You are the Christ. He's now saying, you are the son of the living God. You are God. All right? And that's why Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this truth to thee. You couldn't know it from man. But my Father in heaven. Then Jesus answered, all right, and goes on, and I say to thee, thou art rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I will give to thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was Jesus, Savior, the Christ, the Messiah. Incredible. Notice a couple of things here. How essential this is for the church. Do you remember earlier on Jesus had talked about the wise and the prudent man and the foolish man? The foolish man, when he's building his house, what's he build his house on? Sand, right? Then the wind comes and the storm comes and it's destroyed. The wise man, however, what does he build his house on? Rock. When wisdom incarnate decides to build his church, his ecclesiam meam, his church, what's he going to build it on? Rock. Rock. And although Peter was vacillating, all right, Peter loved our Lord dearly. And if you take that man who was weak and vacillating and you make him the rock, the structure is going to be sound. And that's what he's going to do here. But notice a couple of things. Do you notice that just as at the baptism where there was the manifestation of the Trinity, Remember in our first session together we talked about that? Notice here, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Who picks Peter for this revelation? The Father does. The Father does. Now if the Father is going to inspire someone, how does the Father inspire someone with inner light and inner knowledge? Through the Holy Spirit. 
right? So the Father must have sent the Holy Spirit to illuminate him. That's why Jesus sees the Father's action, sees the work of the Holy Spirit in Peter's profession of faith, and then what does the Son do? The Eternal Son says, And I for my part say unto thee, you see, you have Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The whole Trinity is involved in this moment of the foundation of the church, and what a great moment it is. And so he changes his name to Rock, and he mentions his church, the universal church. On this rock, I will build my church. Not just the church in Ephesus, not just the church in Athens, not just the church in Rome. The universal church is built upon this particular rock of Peter. And then he goes on to say, and I will give you the keys. Keys are symbols of supreme authority, right? Transference of authority. He gets the keys to the kingdom. Nobody else gets the keys. The others share in the power of binding and losing. No one gets the power of the keys but Peter. And that is unique to him. That's why you know that the car is really yours when? They give you the key, all right? You know the house is really yours when they give you the key. Now, of course, the problem they have these push-button things that can wreck everything, you know. I still think those uh, hotel cards are pretty wimpy, you know. I, I like that, you know. But anyway, so the key symbolizing his authority. So his name is changed, indicating he's going to have a new role in, a, in the new covenant, in the new kingdom. Just like Abram became Abraham. Anyone who knows the Old Testament recognizes this is a new covenant, indicates a new function. So you are the rock upon which the church is going to be built. So Peter is the foundation stone. What a foundation stone is to a building. It gives it the cohesion its structure, its strength, its cohesiveness. And so clearly it was our Lord's intention to establish a church and to establish it upon Peter. Now, since time keeps ticking on, I'm going to keep moving on. We'll have time for questions on that if you want to get into the Petros, Petra. I'm happy to do all that, but we have to keep moving. We only have 28 chapters in this thing. Okay, let's go on to chapter 18, because in chapter 18 there is another reference that Jesus will explicitly make to the church, to the church. And it's interesting, this is in the context of fraternal correction. If you go to chapter 18, verse 15, take a look there. It's another time where our Lord uses the word ecclesia and speaks it. All right. If you go to chapter 18, verse 15, it reads, But if thy brother sin against thee, go and show him his fault between thee and him alone. If he listens to thee, thou hast won thy brother. And this is the best way to deal with anything in life, any kind of problem, any kind of difficulty. Do one-on-one -on -one first, right? Don't spread the scandal. Don't spread the poor. If you have a friend who's doing something wrong, you go and talk to them. Now, if you find obstinacy, lack of belief, then you go on to the next thing. If he listens to thee, thou hast won thy brother. But if he do not listen to thee, take with thee one or two more, so that on the word of two or three witnesses, every word may be confirmed. And if he refuse to hear them, appeal to the church. 
But if he refuse to hear even the church, let him be to thee as the heathen and the publican. Amen, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound also in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So again, the power of binding and loosing, this here probably referring to the power of excommunication, that if there's someone who's having a problem, not living the proper Christian life, you speak to them one-on-one, -on -one. if they will not listen to you, you go with another friend to say, look, this is what the church teaches. This is what you should, the way you should be living. They don't listen to that. You finally make the appeal to the church. But if someone has contempt for the church, in a certain sense, they excommunicate themselves, right? If you don't want to have any part, you won't listen to the teaching of the church. You say you're going to invent your own religion. That's what you do in that situation. Okay. After this, a couple other points that we would want to touch upon. In chapter 20, when you're in the Jerusalem ministry, there are several passages where Jesus ends up speaking in a very special way to the apostles. And it's very clear that he wants to spend some time just talking to the apostles about different things. So if you go to chapter 20, verse 17, again, this intimacy with those who follow him. Okay, there you see him saying, as, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will deliver him to the Gentiles to be mocked and scourged and crucified. And on the third day, he will rise again. Notice again, the only thing I'm emphasizing here, taking the disciples aside, they get the intimate glimpse. They hear from the Savior exactly what's going to happen. Why? Because they are going to be teachers. They're going to be leaders in the church. And so it's important that they have that special time with him. Same thing again we see in 24, after the two come forward with the mom to try to say, let us sit at the left and the right hand, which would be positions of power and authority in the kingdom. Uh, the ten find out about it, and he takes them aside and gives them instruction on authority. Look at verse 24. And when the ten heard this, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. Not so is it among you. On the contrary, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, even as the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So again, speaking to them about what? Authority in the church, how it is to be exercised. Authority is always one of service. That's why when you look at the life of the Pope, for example, you know, honestly, who would want that life? Who would want that? You don't have a life. You don't have a life. I remember poor Pope Benedict who wanted to go back and write in his beloved Bavaria. The day after his election, when he spoke to German pilgrims in the Paul VI audience hall, and of course you can't talk about the election, but he says, and as the names were counted, as the guillotine began to descend. <laughs> That's how he described it, as the guillotine began to descend. It is totally service for others, totally giving of yourself for others. And that's the way authority was. And it's in imitation of Christ. So the special time that he will spend with them. Then, of course, chapter 26, verse 20 to 35, uh, which talks about the actual institution of the Eucharist. 
where he gathers these 12 around himself, and then right at that special moment, he actually institutes the great sacrament, and he says, take this and eat, this is my body. And then he says, this is the cup of my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. So commissioning them to be his priest, to continue on with his great sacrifice. And of course, you have the passion, uh, you have the glorious resurrection, but then when you come to the end, Matthew is unique in this, that he presents what is called by most theologians the Great Commission. Remember his first word to Peter and to Andrew and to James and John by the Sea of Galilee. What was his first word? Come. Come follow me. And then throughout the ministry, come learn of me, for I am meek and humble of heart. So there's been all the coming. There has been the time spent with him, time learning from him. And then let us not also forget, during the 40 days after the resurrection, all of the appearances, all of the teaching, as Acts of the Apostles says, he came and he talked to them about the kingdom. He talked about priesthood, he talked about sacraments, he talked about the church, he talked about the rite of initiation for over 40 days, speaking, spending time with them. Now that that has come, notice, let's start in chapter 28, verse 16. The very conclusion of his gospel was going to sort of sum everything up with this apparition in Galilee. And I always love this because, you know, Matthew is the one where it says after Jesus' rise, tell my apostles that they will see me in Galilee. I go before them in Galilee. And I would kind of leave you with this thought and then we'll talk about this passage. But you know, it's so beautiful because obviously he appears to them in Jerusalem, right? Many, many times. There are a number of times when he appears in Jerusalem. But the first thing that they hear is that he's going to go before them into Galilee. All right? Galilee for them is home. Right? It's where they first met him. Jerusalem has been the center of conflict. It has been tension. It has been passion and death. So when you hear that the Lord has risen and he's going to go to Galilee... And I'd ask you to sort of look in your own hearts this evening. Every one of us has our Galilee, right? There was some spot in our life where we first encountered our Lord, all right? Where we had what we would probably call the second conversion, <laughs> where we decided to really give ourselves to Jesus, to let him be Lord of our lives. Where is your Galilee? There are times in your life you need to go back to that Galilee, because if you found him there once, He's still there. I go before you to Galilee. Where is your Galilee? Where did you meet him that first time? That's where he wants us to go. That's the message that he gives to the apostles. Tell them I go before them to Galilee. Thank God. We're going home, back to where we were intimate with the master, where he said, come, come, come. All right. But the eleven went into Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them to go. So notice it presupposes the Jerusalem apparitions, right? Because he told them a specific mountain to go, all right? So they go there. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now the tense of doubt is some had doubted. Not now, but some had doubted in the past when they saw his crucifixion. Some had left right? But they worship him now. And Jesus drew near and spoke to them, saying, and look at the words, all power, 
all power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The devil may be prince of this world, right? And have all those kingdoms and the worldliness. But all the power in heaven and on earth, real power, divine power, supernatural power, has been given to him. Go, therefore, since he has power, he commissions them. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them. Notice, it's not preaching now, it's teaching. Because why? They've come, they have learned. Now is the time they teach with authority, because they're going to have the Holy Spirit. And so they're going to teach like Jesus taught. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Not all that I have suggested to you. All right. All that I have commanded you. There is what St. Paul calls the obedience of faith. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you all days, even unto the consummation of the world. And that, of course, is the great message. He remains with us in our Galilee. And, of course, it doesn't matter what's going to happen tomorrow because, you know, he's there before the sun comes up. And he's always with us. And he's with us in the church. And we have the great glory and joy of being part of that church, that mystical body of Christ. Thank you very much. You mentioned that you do a course on the papacy and that you do, like, two whole lectures on Matthew 16 so quickly what would be your top papal-related um, points that you want to get across to Catholics today? Well, I think some of the things that I hit upon is that the papacy is not something that is an accidental construct. It's not something that was invented by the church. It's not something that was created by the church. Uh, that Peter was selected uh, by Jesus to be the cornerstone, to be the foundation, to be the rock, so to speak. And as you look at all the Gospels, whatever you see of Jesus, you see in a similar way of Peter. Jesus is good shepherd. Peter is good shepherd. Christ is the rock. Christ the cornerstone. Peter is the rock. Um, Christ is the good shepherd who lays down the life for the sheep. The prediction is that Peter also will lay down the life for the sheep. Um, the fact that, you know, the cornerstone was meant to last forever, all right, as long as the church was there, it wasn't just during Peter's lifetime, because he says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell will be assaulting the church throughout time. All right? So obviously, the rock that is Peter that is going to be withstanding that assault, and as long as we stay attached to that rock, guarantees us strength and security, was meant to last to the end of time. So the perpetuity of the papal office is something that would be very important also in terms of reflecting upon. And then, of course, the name change, the significance of that in Old Testament, when Jacob becomes Israel or Abram, be, Abram becomes Abraham, it always indicates a new function. And the bestowing of a nickname, I always love the fact that Jesus did give nicknames. He, James and John became the sons of thunder, you know. But he gave Peter a nickname too. I mean, he gave, but the name implies a function. When your name is changed, you're given a new name, it implies a specific function. The best way, probably think of it, is like in the Civil War at First Manassas, you know, where the, the Confederates are falling back, and then one looks over and says, there stands Jackson, like a stone wall, rally behind the Virginians, all right? And they do, and then eventually Jackson becomes stone wall, all right? Now, the word 
the word Peter was a common noun. It wasn't a personal name, all right? But what happens by the time the Greek Matthew is done, the common noun has become a personal name. Petros is never used in classical antiquity as a name for a person, all right? And the other thing we want to emphasize is also Jesus spoke Aramaic. And in Aramaic, there's only one word for rock, and that's kephos. All right? And the reason he's called Petros and he has the OS is because it's masculine. And Petra is feminine. And it had become a personal name. It's like if a guy's, you're going to call a guy Joseph, you're not going to call him Josephina. All right? And that's the why you have Petros, Petra in the text. That's kind of a quick nutshell. I'm sorry. It's is there any way other than context to distinguish between when Jesus is talking about the kingdom in an eschatological sense or a here and now sense? Um, well, in a certain sense, what happens to the kingdom on this earth is a type. It is a prefigurement of what will happen. Most of the time when it goes into an eschatological, in a parable of the kingdom, or for example when he's talking about the end of the world and the destruction of Jerusalem, he will mention end times. He'll mention angels coming and gathering for the harvest and things like that. But it is very difficult sometimes to sort of pull them apart, like the Matthean text about the end of the world, for example. He's talking very clearly about Jerusalem, all right, and the destruction of Jerusalem. But the reason it becomes difficult is the destruction of Jerusalem is, in fact, an archetype of what's going to happen. It's what we call a multiple fulfillment pattern in prophecy. But it's just a question of really being attentive to the text and trying to discern. If the parable of the kingdom talks about struggle and conflict, it's not an eschatological kingdom. It's not the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the kingdom struggling and battling on earth. It's the church militant and the church suffering. All right? So it really has to be a context thing that you're dealing with. And sometimes you'll slip in, and at the end, when the angels will come, he solely goes eschatological. That, but it's because at that time he wants to show that the final separation will occur at the end of time. But in earth, while we're on earth, it will remain a mixed bag. So we shouldn't be scandalized that there are sinners in the church, or sometimes things happen in the church. started with Judas. I mean, it's a good question. You mentioned that Jesus recognized the Father had inspired Peter when he said, you're the son of the living God, mm -hmm. and that that was something that he would not, I guess, have known the way he would have known Christ being predicted mm -hmm. in the Old Testament. Was there any time when there, the son of God or the son of the living God is used in the Old Testament as if it's a single person? There I mean, was it really unique? Oh, that's a tough question. There are instances where people are referred to as sons of God, sometimes angelic beings and things like that. And there are other instances that give you a hint or a foreshadowing of the doctrine of the Trinity, but not explicitly. It remains hidden. And I think that's one of the reasons why son of man is something that Jesus prefers to use. Because when he does it and he mounts it explicitly, they try to kill him. All right? And so that's a pretty good incentive not to do that. But as far as uh, Peter's understanding at that time, it would have required a special illumination, I think, from the Father. And that's why the Son is recognizing it when he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter gets a beatitude, right? Blessed are you, just like blessed are the people. Blessed are you, 
Simon, son of John, because flesh and... Why? Flesh and blood has not revealed this truth to you. It has come from my Father in heaven. So recognizing clearly that the Father must have given this. So the selection of Simon bar to become Peter, all right, was done by the Father through the agency of the Spirit, and that's why Jesus now st- recognized that he's been professed as son, says, and I for my part say, and then goes on. So you have the whole Trinitarian. But it is very interesting that immediately after Simon makes that profession of faith, and everyone hears that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, what's the very next thing Jesus says? The Son of Man is going up to Jerusalem where he'll be rejected, he will be betrayed, and then the whole prediction, the first prediction about the whole passion, because he wants to make it very clear, Yes, I am the Christ. Yeah, I am the Son of the living God. But <laughs> I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. That's why I came. And then later you get the transfiguration to strengthen that faith. And the three who see the transfiguration intimately are going to be the three who go intimately in the garden, Peter, James, and John, and they'll see the abasement. But they all had the transfiguration moment that they saw ahead of time. This is related to the first question, but... With respect to chapter 16 and the reference to Peter being the rock of the church and gaining the kingdom, keys of the kingdom of heaven, how is that passage read by Protestants? Because if it's clear to Catholics, how do Protestants see that? Yeah, it's interesting. Well, the tradition of Protestant exegesis is, is really very much colored by the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. And so what they will normally do is they will say that there is a distinction between Peter the man and Peter's faith. So when you go into the Greek, it says, you are Petros, and upon this Petra, I will build my church. So they're saying, oh, they're building it upon Peter's faith. Okay, not upon Peter. But clearly, the problem is, even Oscar Coleman, probably the greatest Protestant biblical exegete in his book, Peter in the New Testament, came out and said, we have to give that up. It doesn't work. A couple of reasons. First of all, because when he says, you are Peter, and upon this rock, demonstrative pronouns grammatically refer to the nearest substantive. The nearest substantive is Peter the man. To make it Peter the faith, you have to go back two verses to where he's making his profession of faith. It doesn't work grammatically. Furthermore, there is the play on the words, Petros Petra. And then the other thing that would be important is remember that Jesus spoke Aramaic. He did not speak Greek, even though the Greek is the inspired passage. And in Aramaic, and we know he said Aramaic because he says Simon Bar-Yona. The Bar-Yona is Aramaic, even in the Greek, so we know he spoke Greek. He spoke Aramaic. And in Aramaic, there's only one word for rock, and that's kepha. So he's saying, you are kepha, and upon this kepha. See, in, it's become a personal noun now, you know, and so when you hear it in English, it says, you are Peter, and upon this rock, in the French, it would be better, right? Pierre, Pierre, all right? It, no, it, everything's better in France, even the wine is better. But, but you see, okay, so th- they'll try to make that sort of distinction and that type of separation. That's the fundamental core of their exegesis. Then the other thing, even though Coleman will say it doesn't work, we have to really accept that Peter is the rock, and that's what our Lord's doing here, changing the name but he'll say that the Petrine office lapsed when Peter died, and that's why there's no papacy. But then you have a very serious problem, because uh, you have Jesus saying, I'm going to make you the rock, I'm going to make you the counterstone, the key bearer and everything, and this is so important that the gates of hell won't prevail against it. 
but then when you die, I'm going to take away that principal unit, I'm going to take away those keys, I'm going to take away, and I mean, it just doesn't make sense. Because clearly, he's, he's talking about his church and his church. He said, he'll be with us till the very end of the age, to the end of time. So that's just another step you have to go along the way. But it's interesting in ecumenical discussions how that has become something that has become, people are becoming more open to. Even within orthodoxy, which defines itself in an anti-Roman way, uh, particularly within the Greek Orthodox tradition, there is a greater openness to this now. And even among the Protestants, some of the Lutherans, like in Germany, I think particularly after John Paul's pontificate, where there was just this sense of a spokesman who could speak on behalf of the Christian faith and articulate this on a world stage, there was this idea that, I wish we had somebody like that. Well, you know what? You do. You just have to, you just have to come home. You can do everything you were doing, but you just have to come home. With regards, actually, to the hierarchical situation kind of mentioned with the papacy lasting, I was wondering if you could maybe explain a little bit more the distinction between apostles and disciples, whether the disciples mentioned, you know, whether they would have been present at the Last Supper and possibly would have received the priesthood then versus the office of bishop as the apostles seemed to have it, or whether that would have come with the Acts of the Apostles, if you could maybe explain that a little bit more. Oh, that's tough. That's a whole lecture. Okay, trying to deal with this in a nutshell. Initially, Jesus' followers are referred to as disciples. And we know he has 72 disciples and the 12, but he makes a distinction between the 72 disciples and the 12. The 12 are a more intimate group. They eventually are called apostles. Apostles, and apostle means one who is sent out. All right. So the group apostle, the word apostle refers specifically to that group of the twelve. They would have originally been part of the disciples, but from the disciples he picks that select twelve group that he names apostles. All right. The apostles were the ones who were with him at the Last Supper and would have received initial ordination, and so there would have been that distinction at that time. The two disciples were on the way to Emmaus, and then they come back and they report to the Twelve. See, when you get to Acts of the Apostles, they're referred to in a corporate way as the Twelve. Peter and the Twelve. Or actually, when Judas was gone, they called and Peter and the Eleven. Was it the, the Eleven? They called them the Eleven until they replaced it. So, it, I don't know if that helps, but... So, I mean, there, were, there was a definite stratification even within the earthly ministry of Jesus. Uh, yes, at one point, uh, Christ predicted his, he'd be flogged, uh, crucified, and he would rise from the dead. Uh, and yet, uh, when, he actually, when this actually happened, the apostles seemed to be stunned, totally surprised by it. Mm -hmm. And a, another question, I think it's too complex to go into it, but the idea, did Christ himself have a full-blown knowledge of what was going to happen in a divine sense? And, I think so. that's a very good question. There are three predictions of the passion in the gospel, and I think the best way to look at this is I think Christ clearly knew what was going to happen. Um, I think his mother knew what was going to happen. They read the Psalms. They heard the prophets. You couldn't read the Isaiah prophecy of the suffering servant, which is so explicit, or read Psalm 23, which at that time was regarded as messianic. And by the way, even with some of the Dead Scene School, the Essene community mentioned that when the Messiah come, he was going to be pierced. His hands and feet would be pierced. They had a sense of a suffering Messiah. Now, remember, it's one thing to know what's going to happen. It's another thing to experience it, to actually go through it. 
He knew it, and it was, it was a touch to raw nerve. Remember in Luke, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how constrained I am that it be accomplished. This, you know, and then on Mark's gospel, and he set his face to go towards Jerusalem. It was, these, and he's walking ahead of everybody going to Jerusalem. These things were difficult. And even remember several times when he predicts the passion, there's an interesting, the psychological reaction, the apostles were afraid to ask him about it. I mean, if you knew that was going... And now there's one time, they obviously knew it, because remember in John's Gospel, when Thomas says, well, let's go, we'll, let's go die with him. They knew that something bad was going to happen. But when you really see the man who's been in charge of everything, who even in the garden, who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. And they fall back to I am, and they fall back to the ground. When he finally says, this is your hour. And then you see him, who's been in total control of every situation, being beaten. I mean, it's, it's just horrifying. You can understand how even poor Peter, you know, when he's seeing this from a distance, is just, you know, terrified and mortified at this. I don't even know the guy until he sees him in the eyes and sees it's the same man. And then he goes out and he weeps bitterly and has this conversion. But I think when it, you know, it's like you can know something's going to happen, you know, but then when it happens, the experience of it is very different. You may know that there's a good chance you may have cancer, but when you actually get the diet, you have it. Okay, it's a different experience. I think the same thing, if we're willing to enter in humanly, psychologically, in terms of what was going on there, it seems very, that's, that's the way people are. It's a great question. Thank you very much, Dr. O'Donnell. Okay. Thank you all for coming out. I've really enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Bless you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.